So this may be an odd piece to put so close to the beginning of a new podcast, but then that statement in itself says a lot about my complicated relationship with spirituality. Mother Mary is very much connected to how and why I started Shifter Spirits in 2006, and I've been promising, intending to tell my story about her this entire time, and I never seem to get around to it. I'm getting closer. Maybe it makes a kind of sense that I would start a podcast here. My relationship with Mary is significant and complex. I'm one of the most unlikely people I can think of to be visited by the Virgin Mary, but I was. And that is a story in itself, which I will have to come back and tell you on another episode. I'm not even sure how to think about her. I suppose she is an ascended master to me. No offense to anyone who believes she is the mother of their Messiah. I certainly was not raised Catholic. I wasn't raised to be a Christian. I was raised surrounded by Christianity, but I do not identify as a Christian. I do believe in magic and miracles and spirits. I consider myself something of a witch. I'm known to be a psychic. I'm an eclectic, spiritual but not religious, as I imagine you probably are as well. My name is Slade Robertson. For over 10 years, I've been a professional intuitive and the author of the blog Shift Your Spirits, where I write about spirituality with fewer hearts and flowers than most New Age blather. I also mentor emerging intuitives, psychics, and healers in a program called Automatic Intuition. And today, I want to tell you about some grandmother magic, one of the magical ritual prayer spells that I practice. It involves a glass bowl that belonged to my maternal grandmother and a painting of the Virgin Mary given to me by one of my readers, one of my first clients. Now, this glass bowl is actually an ashtray. It's a beautiful, heavy, amber-colored glass ashtray with this pattern of rays in raised ridges on the bottom. It's kind of a mid-century modern sunburst. It could be an antique from as far back as the 1930s to the 1960s. I was born in 1969, and this belonged to my grandmother, who died in 1971. My maternal grandmother, Victoria, who was called by her middle name, as I am, her full name was actually Queen Victoria. She kept this ashtray as a prized knickknack on her coffee table for years, maybe decades. My Aunt Vera assured me that no one was ever allowed to ash in it, though. Now, a little bit about Vera. Um, she's the oldest of 11 kids. She's my mother's sister. The first book I ever published was actually my Aunt Vera's autobiography, my mother edited the book, and I formatted and published it. It's called Stop Over in Wilder. It starts with this beautiful opening passage about the first time Vera saw a plane flying over her, her hometown as a little girl in the 1920s. Um, Wilder, Tennessee was one of those little towns that literally disappeared. It, it doesn't exist anymore. Um, it, it makes me think of a few other films and, and books like um, A Trip to Bountiful, which started out as a play. And then, of course, Fried Green Tomatoes at the Whistle Stop Cafe, a Fanny Flagg novel that was also turned into a movie. Um, both of those works are kind of about this phenomenon of, of towns that 
um, from, you know, the early 19th century that um, by the end of the 19th century just aren't there anymore. Before Vera passed, she gave this ashtray to me. And for the record, I have never ashed in it either. Um, Now, the painting, it came to me from a woman named Deborah Estep, who uh, friends and family called Debs. Um, Deborah, several years ago, my mom was undergoing a major surgery and, um, I had posted about it online and Deb saw it and she sent my mom this, uh, little angel coin, this medallion for her to keep with her as a protection. So, um, Debs is this really sweet soul. Uh, she's a military mom. Um, she, uh, to be someone that I've never met before, she has, um, been very generous to me over the past decade and, um, to my mom, um, who she also doesn't know. She's just a, a really kind soul and a really cool person. And actually she told me that this painting is called a mezzotint or mezzotint. I'm not even sure how to pronounce it. She told me to Google it. And, um, actually now that I'm here recording this, I realized that I forgot to Google it. Um, some of you might want to look that up and see exactly what it means. I'm just looking at it. So that works for me. But back in 1985, Deborah was working part time as a receptionist for an attorney and the attorney's secretary asked her to proofread an advertisement he was going to run in the paper. He was looking for a part time person to be a companion for his elderly mother. Debs thought about it that night, and the next day, she went into the attorney's office and she pitched him the idea of hiring her for the position. She told him, you know, he could find anybody to answer the phones, but he was going to have a hard time finding someone he could really trust to care for his mother. She said he had a dry personality, and he just kind of nodded and said, okay, I'll, I'll think about it and let you know. And leaving the office, Deborah thought, oh, well, you know, he seemed less than positive about that idea. She was 27 years old at the time, and, and she thought he probably wanted someone a little bit older. But the next day, he approached her when she arrived for work, and he was very enthusiastic and friendly in a way that she'd never seen him be before. And he told her he wanted her to start working with his mom the very next week. So Mrs. Mays was 86 years old at the time. She was sharp as a tack, as they say, a brilliant woman. She'd graduated from college in 1918 with a degree in pharmacology. And over the five years that Deborah was her caretaker, there was no subject that they didn't discuss. Mrs. Mays kept up with current issues and world news. Um, With all that had happened in the century she'd lived through, listening to her was like a lesson in history. And Deborah would often bring her young children to visit. Mrs. Mays adored them, and they came to call her Grandma Mays. After she passed in 1990, her family invited Deborah to her apartment and generously offered her any of the woman's possessions she wanted as mementos. So the mesotent of the Virgin Mary with child was one of those three items Deborah kept to remember her time with Mrs. Mays. 25 years later, Deborah was reading my blog, Shift Your Spirits, and I had written about 
this connection I have to Mother Mary. And she said she had the impulse to send the mezzo tent to me. And as she was boxing it up, she sensed that Mrs. Mays was with her and wholeheartedly approved of, of giving it to me. So needless to say, I was touched once again by uh, Deborah's generosity towards me. It was a really sweet gesture. And it was also charged with so much history and sentiment. And, you know, that alone makes the image extremely powerful, regardless of, of what the image is of. Um, I had just purchased my first home, and it was the first image I hung on the walls in the house. And I saw that as a blessing from Mary herself. So I sent Debs a picture of the picture in my still empty new house. So the glass ashtray, the magic prayer bowl, it, it sits on a low chest in my bedroom now with the mezzo tent of Mother Mary hanging just above it. And so this ritual or the rules of this ritual that I do, um, I'm not sure if it's religious. It could be sacrilegious uh, to me. And in my mind, it feels like a little old Catholic lady meets a granny woman witch kind of ritual. Um, so the thing about the requests that I put in the prayer bowl, um, some of the kind of rules I have around this is it's got to be something big. It can't be petty stuff. It can't be selfish or materialistic. It's got to be about someone other than just me. And more than anything, it has to be something that I can't affect or control any further on my own. Usually, it's it's something I've already tried to affect or impact, and I feel like it's finally come to the point where it's outside of my power. Um, and at that point, I've I've got to surrender it. I've got to let it go, and I, I give it to Mary. And I actually say that a lot. I'm going to give this to Mary. And so the requests are written down on little pieces of paper. And they're also um, left open in the bowl while the request is sort of active. Um, and if in some way the prayer gets answered or the problem gets solved or taken care of or resolved in any way, um, when they're done, so to speak, I, I fold them up and close them, but I leave them inside the bowl. Everything that I give to Mary in this way is taken care of. It's really kind of miraculous, and I don't take it lightly, and I don't throw a lot of things in there because I don't want to mess with this perfection that I've got going. So there's a lot of reverence about where I draw the lines and what goes in there. But the stuff that goes in there, it gets taken care of. Um, some of the you know kinds of things that I've put in there, um, I had some friends uh, for the last few years who were trying to adopt a child and um, that went into the bowl. Um, my own brother and sister-in-law um, were pregnant last year with the first and only grandbaby in our family, um, their little son named Hayden, who was born on Christmas Eve. And um, obviously, I did um, an ongoing kind of uh, 
prayer bowl request uh, that started out with a little piece of paper just sort of announcing that they were pregnant and it just had their names and, and baby on it. And then um, when they had their gender reveal party and we found out that it was going to be a boy, there was this little um, blue tiny clothespin that you wore on your collar on your shirt or whatever at the party to indicate um, the sex that you were predicting that the baby was going to be. So everybody had a little blue clothespin or a pink clothespin. I had a blue one because I correctly predicted that it was going to be a boy. Um, so when I got back from the gender reveal party, I added the little blue clothespin to um, the piece of paper that said Parish and Heather's baby. And then uh, later on, uh, when they chose a name for him, I wrote his name uh, Hayden on there as well. And so I imagine that Hayden's prayer request and his little slip of paper with the blue clothespin on it is likely to reside in this bowl for the rest of my life. Um, That's one that I don't see ever being closed up or put away. There have been other things that I've put in there. Um, You know, whenever someone comes to me with something really serious and heavy going on in their world, um, especially if they know about this prayer bowl thing, which now I'm probably going to get even more requests. But if someone makes a really specific request to me or if I see it as something that I can do on behalf of them, um, uh, it often involves other people's loved ones. Um, I will uh, put their name on a paper and put it in there. And like I said, it always gets taken care of. Um, There's only one time that it didn't work. Um, and that was with one of my pets, a cat named Cinco. And I'll tell you that in just a second. But um, first, I wanted to go back and mention that um, I don't know how this happened or it, it emerged or evolved, but there there seems to be some significance to the color of ink that I write these prayer requests down in. So um, red ink... I use Sharpies, by the way, in case you're wondering. Um, Red ink is usually for something that's kind of a short-term emergency situation, like maybe a health crisis or someone's, you know, going in for surgery, something that is immediate and going to have a resolution fairly soon. I tend to write those in red. Um, Things that are long-term or ongoing, such as my nephew Hayden, um, his request is written in black, and uh, most of my general requests are written in black ink. And so there's this one time that the prayer bowl did not work, and that was with this cat Cinco that I was talking about. Um, He was a feral cat that I spent um, over a year kind of uh, feeding and luring closer and closer to trusting and um, to being able to come inside during the winter and and stay in the garage where it was a little warmer. It took um, months and months of putting out food and inching him closer and closer to um, get him to a point where he would come into the garage during the winter and and, um, huddle near a heater. at one point, he was badly hurt, and um, he had something stuck in his eye, and I was horrified and knew he was going to die this really slow, agonizing 
death um, uh, or be, you know, if he did survive, it was going to be after a lot of suffering and and he was going to be impaired for the rest of his life. So um, I was able to trap him with a raccoon trap and took him to the vet and um, they were able to save him and save his eye and they, they fixed him, uh, you know, um, neutered him. And uh, I brought him home and returned him back out into the woods and, and he disappeared for several days, but he eventually started coming back again. And this was a really wild animal. He was the most timid animal that I've ever encountered. And I don't know that he ever would have been a pet. Um, he was just to the point where he would let me sort of quickly brush my hand along his back, you know, when he walked around my feet. But um, that was as close as he got to being a pet. And um, he was a really, really gentle, pretty, sweet little animal. He was solid gray and he was very hard to see in the woods. He looked like a shadow. So long story short, I didn't know this was going to be a story about Cinco, but um, maybe I need to to um, eulogize him a little bit. He um, He was attacked and killed by a coyote in broad daylight and we heard it um and it was really horrifying and we didn't know for sure if what we heard was him uh it was more of a kind of suspect noise in the woods um but he didn't show up to eat his appointed time that evening and um spent weeks looking for him in the woods um, looking for some sign of him, hoping that maybe he had run away um, because of the coyotes that were back there and that, you know, he might come back again. Um, and there's something kind of nothing worse about something disappearing, you know, and, and not knowing what happened. And so I was so caught up in, in all the practical ways of looking for him that I didn't really think to give it to Mary. And by the time that I did, you know, it was probably a week had gone by from when we assumed he had been snatched by the coyote. And, um, I wrote his name on a piece of paper and I really didn't do it in a sense of empowerment. I didn't do it as something that I felt like I'm giving this to Mary to solve. It felt like an afterthought and, I don't know why, but at the time I couldn't locate the green, um, I couldn't locate the black Sharpie or the red Sharpie. I grabbed a green Sharpie and I thought, well, green is kind of like the color of life. So it'll be fine. And so I wrote his name down on the green piece of paper and I put it in the prayer bowl. And, um, oh, I've never written anything in green ever again, um, the thing about the way I believe that these spells and these rituals work is they are a kind of programming for our own brains, you know. And um, to me now, the the color of that green ink is it's kind of poisoned, you know. And so I have this really strong association and sense of hope and manifesting positive things when it comes to the black and the red. So. You know, I've become very superstitious about the green and um, I won't be writing anything in green ever again unless I evolve some new kind of programming where it makes better sense. But right now, 
those are kind of the rules of this um, ritual that I do. So whenever I tell this story to somebody about the Mary Bowl, the Virgin Mary ashtray, um, I get requests from people and they're essentially prayer requests. So um, if you have something like that and, and you follow me on social media and you want to um, contact me and, and, and tell me about it, um, I, uh, if it's, you know, if it's something you genuinely feel like fits the criteria, by all means, let me know. But the reason why I wanted to record this and tell you about it is because um, explaining all this would be a little hard to write down. But more than anything, I'm telling you this because, you know, you can make your own magical prayer bowl or prayer bottle or prayer jar or anything like this. Um, you know, it takes something that you feel has some emotional significance and maybe some spiritual symbolism, um, something that you identify with as being a a conduit between you and the divine. So whatever that is, I encourage you to make one and you can borrow my rules to get started and and you can adapt them um, however you think they'd best work for you. So thanks for listening to this episode of Shift Your Spirits. You can subscribe to this podcast in iTunes or Stitcher or whatever app you use to access podcasts. If you're new to podcasts, um, it's that little purple button on your iPhone. You click it, search Shift Your Spirits, and hit subscribe. Also, since this is a new podcast, it would really help me out if you would rate the show in iTunes and leave me a review. Um, share it on social media, tell your friends about it. It would make a huge difference in my efforts here, and I would be extremely grateful. If you'd like to get an intuitive reading with me or download a free guided meditation, please go to sladeroberson.com. That's S-L-A-D-E-R-O-B-E-R-S-O-N.com. If you're interested in my professional intuitive training program, please go to automaticintuition.com. And for show notes and links in the podcast, please visit shiftyourspirits.com. And I'll talk to you later.